chivalry, singleness, and the science of grief. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. He's got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, I'll talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them. But I'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. So much to talk about this week. We're going to be announcing details about a series of conferences with the liturgist called the Liturgist Gathering. You can find out more by going to theliturgist.com slash gathering and stick around to the end of the show for more news regarding events. But for now, we got a show to do, so let's get it started. Hey, Mike, got a question for you. I'm wondering about the science of singleness. For a long time, I think there was this trend in Western Christianity that said uh, you have to get married. That's one of your main duties as a human, as a Christian. And in my life, I'm, I'm a pretty young guy. It seems like there's been a, a pushback to that and people saying, well, no, you can be called to singleness. They like to point to the Apostle Paul, who was, was single, advised some of his readers to just stay single if they weren't. Like, just go ahead, stay single, no big deal. I'm wondering about the science of it. What is scientifically beneficial about a partnership? I mean, you've talked about that kind of thing a little bit on your show already. But what is scientifically beneficial, if anything, about being single? evolutionarily speaking, psychologically speaking, in terms of sociology, all that stuff. I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for what you do, and thanks for listening to this question. Well, as we've discussed in a few of our After Dark episodes, there's nothing necessarily evolutionarily driven about human marriage. That's a cultural institution. And uh, you can look more in my archives of the show and hear a lot more about this. But basically, biologically speaking, humans are pair bonding animals. We do well when we are pair bonded to another member of our species. But it appears that uh, probably our most natural inclination is for multiple serial pair bondings. Biologically speaking, we're not super ideally suited to lifelong pair bonding. Pair bonding for the lifespan of uh, our offspring is is pretty natural. That's not to say I'm anti-marriage. I'm deeply pro-marriage. I'm speaking to the science of it and acknowledging a scientific idea that's pretty well supported by data. I almost said truth, but that might be an overreach. Uh, But this is an interesting question because I'd never actually looked up uh, studies showing the scientific benefits of singleness uh, as a married person and as a person who gets mostly questions about marriage on the show. It's just something I never looked up before. And I was surprised to find that there are a lot of studies, uh, at least a, you know, a few dozen, that dive into the scientific benefits of remaining single. And there's nothing surprising in this data. (laughs) Well, maybe one thing that's a little surprising. But let's look at some of the documented scientific, statistical, sociological benefits of singleness. One, in general, single people are thinner. They 
tend to have a lower body mass index and lower body fat percentages. You know, my personal anecdotes certainly illustrate that. I was a relatively thin single man, and I'm a relatively rotund married man. You do a lot of shared meals together in a marriage. That's a factor there. But it's not just that. In terms of their activity level, single people are just more physically active. They get more exercise. They tend to travel more. Uh, They tend to go out more, and therefore they burn more calories. Now, uh, talking about some psychological benefits, single people are in general much less concerned about money than married people at similar levels of income, per capita income. So a single person who has the same amount of money as an equivalent married person is less concerned about their finances. And that, you know, that's related to the degree to which you are sharing resources uh, and therefore sharing your financial autonomy with another person when you're married. Uh, Single people socially have more close friends than married people. Not just friends as an aggregate number, but self-identified close friends, uh, close friendships, which we understand to be psychologically beneficial. Now, surprisingly, most studies support the idea that on average, single people have sex less often than married people. That kind of conflates some uh, stereotypes we have in our culture, but it appears that married people actually have sex more often than single people. Obviously, we've listed some benefits of singleness here, but a good marriage is very beneficial to people. It has lifespan benefits, health benefits, some heart health benefits. Even it appears that married people uh, on average recover faster from surgery than single people. But that data, if you start to tease it apart, reveals something pretty profound, and that is good marriages, healthy marriages, stable marriages are extremely beneficial to your health and to your well-being. But Unhealthy marriages are actually very detrimental. So it's not really a matter so much of whether you're married or not, but the health of your most significant uh, pair-bonded relationship. Studies are mixed when they look at unmarried partnerships compared to marriages. We probably have a lot of cultural bias that's difficult to tease out there. Uh, So I'm not going to weigh into that. The data is too controversial. But in general, it seems that singleness is a perfectly viable uh, survival strategy or happiness strategy, scientifically speaking, as is a healthy marriage. So I would say you have a great case scientifically to choose to be single if you so desire and also to approach marriage with care. And with caution, because marriage appears to be an emotional force multiplier. Good marriages are very beneficial, and bad marriages are very detrimental. And I can totally understand why some people would say, you know what, maybe I'll just bow out of this marriage thing altogether, find happiness, fulfillment, and service in my own life, and science backs you up. Our next question came in via email, and it reads... Hey, Science Mike, my question for you is about chivalry, specifically the tradition in which men show special courtesies toward women, such as giving up seats, opening doors, abiding by the lady's first rule, those sorts of things. As a female, I appreciate such gestures, but as an egalitarian, it doesn't seem consistent with my views to encourage such a one-sided tradition. 
However, it feels like it would be awkward for both of us if I were to insist that my husband take the only open seat on the subway while I stand or let him wear my jacket if he's cold. Why is that? Can or should that sort of chivalry exist in an equal society? What are the alternatives? More importantly, can I get my husband flowers for Valentine's Day? What a great question, and it's one I've been thinking about a lot. I'm a Southern male feminist. If that is not a contradiction in terms, I don't know what is. Uh, I grew up in a household where uh, my parents had a very egalitarian approach. My mom is a very strong female figure in my life. But I was also taught that uh, you hold the door open for ladies and um, women get to eat first at meals. Seemingly very pleasant approach to women. So I've always kind of been a male feminist who emphasizes chivalry. And I've been thinking along the same lines that you have because it seems like some acts of chivalry really do reinforce gender stereotypes and box women into a weaker or submissive position in society. Here's what I mean. Uh, How often do we comment on women's appearance versus men's? Very often. When, When men compliment women, we tend to compliment their appearance. And I don't even mean in a creepy, hey, baby kind of way. I just mean conversationally. Uh, if if men compliment women, it is very likely to be about their appearance, even in professional contexts. We tend to offer women assistance primarily in physical tasks. Let me help you carry that heavy thing. Let me open the door for you. And this subtly reinforces the idea that women are weak or not physically capable. But on the other hand, those are still nice things. Validation is good for people. We have a disturbing tendency in society to objectify people and emphasize their physicality, but at the same time, people still like to know that they're attractive, that they look good, that other people appreciate their appearance. That's a psychological need that we have. Uh, It's good to help someone carry something heavy. It's good to take on social niceties that make it easier for people to share spaces. So here's the solution I've adopted And it's chivalry for all. (laughs) That's been my solution to eliminate the gender gap. So uh, I hold the door open for men and for women. And I understand that by holding the door open, some people are going to appreciate that act. And other people are going to conflate it with uh, some sort of anti-feminist notion. So if a woman is offended that I would open the door for her, if I know that woman, I'm going to remember not to do that next time. I offer to help both men and women with physical tasks. So if someone's trying to lift something heavy or get something off a shelf or, or any of the things that we would typically associate with chivalry, I help men and women. I make sure that I compliment and comment on the appearance of men and women. Guess what? Men like to be told they look great today, that their clothes look good or whatever. People like that reinforcement. I also make sure that I comment on the talents and capabilities of men and women. So I make sure that my compliments about women in my life are not primarily or exclusively physical in nature. I make an intentional effort to observe 
I'm not talking about false flattery, but to observe their real talents and gifts and capabilities and then tell them I appreciate them for both men and for women. Now, we'll cut to the heart of something much deeper here when we talk about who pays for dinner. Because some studies have found that generosity can be a form of economic dominance, a sort of power display. In other words, I can afford to buy this meal, and I'm showing you that I'm economically powerful. And uh, in my own life, I've actually struggled for most of my life with allowing anyone to buy me a meal, even though I readily buy dinner, not only for my wife or, or back when we were dating, but also for friends and and business associates. And when I saw that data, I realized that my reticence to accept gifts was a form of pridefulness. So I'm learning to balance my natural generous giving techniques with being a gracious recipient of other people's generosity. So when we look at that in a chivalry context, I think it's great and admirable for a man to buy a woman dinner. But I also think it's great and admirable for men to graciously accept a woman's gesture to do the same. So absolutely buy your husband flowers for Valentine's Day if he likes flowers. (laughs) It's always good to show acknowledgement and appreciation for people in relationships There's an unfortunate tendency for humans to take for granted those people that are closest to us. And I thought um, I couldn't be a bigger fan of Emma Watson and her work, and especially her work on feminism. But I'll have a link in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com to Emma Watson's take on chivalry, which I was very pleased to find is very similar to my own, which lets me know I'm on the right track because Emma Watson is awesome. Science Mike. Uh, my name is Bethany. I'm asking you a question from Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, I discovered your show about six to seven months ago, and I've just been eating it up. And I had a question about something you said um, on Pete Holmes' podcast, on his You Made It Weird episode. Um, you said something along the lines of the one of the big paradoxes that people have is that God can't possibly be all-loving and all-powerful because it doesn't make sense. And I believe that the example you used was there could be a little girl... Um, born in a, the developing world who all she knows her whole life is a life of sexual slavery and then she dies. And a God who is all-loving and all-powerful could not allow that to happen because that wouldn't be love. Um, but then you never provided any sort of uh, uh, answer to this paradox and it's been eating me up uh, for months trying to figure out how to rectify that. So I was just kind of wondering what your thoughts were on that on that kind of paradox and what that means for someone who wants to who believes that the God that they worship is all loving and all powerful, but we live in a world where these atrocities happen. Um, how do you kind of make that make sense to you? Uh, thanks so much. Have a great day. So the last few episodes of Ask Science Mike have been the most downloaded and the most shared episodes I've ever done. And that's because uh, I got an email from someone who said they'd like to help me with the show. His name's Andrew Galucky, and he said, you know, what could I do to help? What's taking a lot of your time? And I said, digging through all these questions people send in and picking questions and getting the questions to the patrons on Patreon takes a ton of time, and if you really want to help, you could do that. And he took it on. He's done a great job. And I've noticed that Andrew's primary approach is to pick the questions I'm afraid to answer because either I think the answer will be controversial 
or because I just think it's too difficult to answer. And your question, I'll just be honest, would have had no chance of ever making it on the show when I was picking the questions. Because it's one I've said, that's a great question I'm going to answer when I have more time. And I would never have enough time. So thank you, Andrew, for making me answer difficult questions. (laughs) Here's why I didn't pose an answer to the problem of evil, also called the theodicy on the Pete Holmes show. I've never found a good solution to the problem of evil. Now, if you're not familiar with theodicy, the idea is if God is all-powerful and all-loving, why does such awful and unnecessary suffering happen in the world? Suffering happens because of people's free will, sure, and that's one solution that is presented, that God gives us the freedom to act with our will unconstrained. And that's a terrible justification for the problem of evil (laughs) because I'm a dad. And if I were to let one of my daughters stab my other daughter out of respect for her free will, I would go to prison. I would be arrested and people would frown on that. And I would be considered a very negligent father. And I'm just a dad, just a man on the earth. And we're talking about a cosmic deity with all-encompassing love. So I don't buy the free will answer for a second. But it's not just that evil is a matter of free will or suffering. Things happen on this planet completely unrelated to human action that produce tremendous suffering. I would say natural disasters like tsunamis would be a fantastic example. No person creates a tsunami. No person directly influences the tectonic and geologic activities that drive a tsunami, and yet uh, people suffer and die because of them. Insurance companies call them acts of God. It's a thorny issue, and it's one that drives a lot of people away from faith. I'd love to tell you I have a good answer. I just don't have a good answer for the problem of evil. I will say that my approach to theology sidesteps the problem of evil. When we assume that God is like us, that God is a being with will and consciousness and agency, observing the world from some vantage point, and then acting or not based on conscious decisions, the problem of evil is pressing indeed. If you follow my work, you know I'm a mystic. And if you've read my axioms, you know that I don't define God in such personal terms. I mainly define God uh, in a very similar way to the way physicists define the fundamental forces of physics, that God is the fabric in which we find embodiment. God is the source of all and the ground of all being. And the source of all is, in physics, something called the singularity, a mysterious uh, unification from which everything emerged. And the ground of all being, that's the fundamental forces of physics. Uh, That's the Higgs ocean or the Higgs field, the animating forces underneath all of reality. And none of those things could be considered conscious by any stretch of the imagination. And that sounds deeply unchristian because the Bible shows a God that loves humanity, that acts in the world. And I'll be honest, I experienced that personal God. And that's why I lean into mysticism. There's a, there's a scientific insight about how the universe is structured 
there's a logical framework that makes an acting God ethically troubling. But I still encounter God in prayer. I still encounter God in the Bible. I still encounter an active God in my own life. I just embrace that. I, as much as possible, try to let God's love that I experience motivate me to address the problem of evil personally. Where I see suffering, where I see evil in the world, God's love compels me to act. Even though I can't define exactly what God's love is or who God is. Because when I think about a universe with a singularity, when I think about the degree to which relativity undermines our assumptions about time and space, a lot of these questions seem to be framed within a Newtonian cause and effect type of physics with an arrow of time. And our larger reality doesn't seem to incorporate that at all. I don't have time to go into a lot of depth on the podcast. I spend a whole chapter on this uh, in my upcoming book, Finding God in the Waves, uh, which I'll have a link to on the website if you want to pre-order it. It doesn't come out until September, but that's where I a huge motivation for me writing the book was to be able to go really deep into this issue and to talk about you know, the implications of modern physics and space-time on our theological beliefs about God. But ultimately, all of those things represent an intellectual surrender, not a mastery of the problem of evil. I think a lot of Christians, because the problem of evil is so thorny, avoid talking about it. And when we avoid talking about it, people discover it on their own and it undermines their faith. I think a better approach is to bring it out in the open and say, this is a problem. This is a confusing thing. I'm sorry, I can't give you an answer. I don't have. There are theologians who will say they've addressed it. I've read many, many theologians work on the problem of evil, and I've never found anything that is satisfying or that I would tell the mother of a child who's lost their life in a way that you alluded to in their question. It would be insulting. It would minimize their suffering. Ultimately, the only answer we have to the problem of evil is our actions. And so I stand with humanists who think human action is essential to creating a better world. And that's why I consider myself a religious humanist, that the way God acts in this world, the way God reduces suffering, the way God produces justice is the changed minds, the changed hearts, and the changed approach of people who choose to help others without any regard to personal gain because they are motivated by divine love. It is the only answer to the problem of evil that makes any sense to me. Our last question came in via email and it reads, Hey Science Mike, thanks so much for the show. This past weekend, my dad passed away after a battle with cancer. My family, friends, and I have been grieving his loss for the last several days and our faith communities have been so supportive. However, My always inquiring mind has had to wonder, what is the evolutionary purpose of grief? It's widely known that many animals, from elephants to apes to even dogs and cats, experience at least a form of grief when a member of their social group dies. What purpose does the grieving process serve in the survival of a species? Well, first, I want to tell you I am so sorry 
for your loss. Cancer is uh, awful. Its frequency, its common occurrence in humans does nothing to minimize its brutality. And I'm just so sorry for what you've experienced. Now, when we think about the evolution of grief, it's important to remember that evolution isn't exclusively focused on producing positive traits. Natural selection's main role is to eliminate features in an organism that prevent it from reproducing. A secondary effect is to boost traits that are advantageous or create additional advantages in reproduction. And evolution pretty much ignores benign features of organisms. And so evolution can drive a trait and then there can be a secondary effect of that trait that is benign and therefore ignored by natural selection. And that's probably where grief comes from. Here's why. Animals that pair bond and animals that create social bonds have a survival advantage. Uh, Individual humans would not be a competitive predator on this planet, but bands of human, tribes of humans are very competitive. And so evolution, especially in mammals, has rewarded feelings of affection and social bonds, friendships, relationships between animals. And for animals that are especially dependent on one another, elephants, apes, humans, dogs, there can be a separation anxiety. We don't like to be away from the people we're close to. And the way separation anxiety is alleviated is to get in the presence of that other organism, that other animal, that other person to whom we feel close. In grief, that alleviation is impossible. So some social scientists and some evolutionary biologists believe that grief is unreconcilable, out-of-control, separation anxiety. We become aware that we can never see this person we care for again, and we go through an acute, intense separation anxiety that may take a very long time to resolve and may leave permanent scarring, permanent trauma on our psychological makeup. So it's not that grief has an evolutionary purpose, It's that separation anxiety has an evolutionary purpose. That said, I think grief is beautiful. Accepting and honoring our grief for another person is a way of keeping them close to us emotionally, keeping their memories valuable, and carrying them with us. I would encourage you to not be afraid of grief, to not be afraid of tears, to lean into them, and you you may find that in time, that grieving process is cleansing, that it creates a clarity, and it creates a deep and profound appreciation for what your dad did in your life and what your dad left with you, that his ideas, his view of the world, they go along with you every day, that in a very real sense, your dad's cognition (laughs) stays on this earth in your own mind, in your own neurons, in your own synapses. The philosopher and scientist uh, Douglas Hofstetter, in his book, I'm a Strange Loop, talks about this some, that our consciousness, if it's a, a pattern of neurological connections, the people closest to us build a facsimile of that, an approximation. Now, it may be 
about as detailed as a, an image made of mosaic tiles versus a photograph. But that overall pattern continues. And because you knew your dad so well, you could probably, if someone said, what would your dad say in response to this question? You could answer with a high degree of accuracy because you have that shadow, that neurological image of your dad in your own mind. So grief may not have an evolutionary purpose, but it can drive you to a profound appreciation for those things that you keep in the world on behalf of your dad. That because you knew him so well, he will be with you the rest of your life. Well, there's another episode of Ask Science Mike. Done. Completed. Let's talk about some events that are coming up. First of all, this week, I'll be in Phoenix and Los Angeles doing Lost and Found with the Liturgists. If you don't have tickets and you want to be at that event, go get tickets right now. <laughs> go to theliturgist.com slash events, or you can go to our Facebook page. There's links to the tickets there. Here's why. In Phoenix, all the VIP tickets are gone, and the tic- remaining tickets are going fast. You don't want to wait and try to get tickets at the door. Phoenix, listen up. We're coming. You're going to miss us if you don't get your tickets. Same thing Los Angeles. The first showing is sold out. And less than 20 tickets are left for the second showing. Go get your tickets. Don't wait. Okay? Because Lost and Found is an incredible event. Uh, You don't want to miss it. People that have seen Lost and Found in other cities have told us it's one of the most powerful things they've ever seen. And frankly, I'd like to see you. I'd like you will be hanging around after the event. And uh, I'd like to meet you. I'd like to talk to you and, and hear about your life and how you're walking in your journey of faith. We're also doing a tour. Gunger's doing their One Wild Life tour, and the liturgists are going along in most cities. Uh, that will look like a Gunger show with a little bit of Science Mike spice splashed in there, followed by a Q&A. It's not a, a deeply choreographed event like Lost and Found. It'll be a Gunger show plus a Q&A podcast style. There's a ton of events in the Southwest and in Texas, so... We'd love to see you on the Gunga One Wildlife Tour. Now, a huge announcement is the Liturgist Gathering, our upcoming conference series. We're doing four cities, uh, Dallas, Denver, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Going to be about 500 tickets available at each of those. We're going to announce details about that this week. So go to theliturgist.com slash gathering to learn more. And then in about a Another week, tickets will go on sale. They're going to be much more affordable than belong tickets were. That's why we've made it a little bit larger event to try to make it something that people can afford to go to without stretching the bank, but not so large that we can't spend time with everybody who goes. So go to the website, sign up for an email alert, and watch out for when tickets go on sale because I'm expecting these to go fast. Almost every event we do sells out, and we're trying to go to four cities, they're geographically dispersed. So that, you know, it's either an easy drive or an, a, an affordable flight for pretty much everyone in the U.S. who downloads this program. We're working really hard on that. I'm telling you, you don't you don't want to miss out. When we opened uh, t- belong ticket sales for the first time, 3,500 people tried to buy a hundred tickets. <laughs> so, you know, some people missed out. 
And I've got a lot of events coming up too. So in addition to the literature events, I'm doing an event with uh, Pete Enns in Ventura, California. That's going to be really exciting. Uh, just a ton of different cities coming up. If you go to mikemccarg.com slash events or just go to asksciencemike.com and click on events, you can see in the next few months I'm doing more events than I've ever done before. I've heard your requests that you'd like me to come see you, and I'm trying to. Now, look at that list. If you look at that list and you say, oh, my city's not on here, it's no problem. I'd love to come to your city. Uh, And you can learn about how to get me in your town. There's multiple ways to do this. You can either book me to come give a talk, or if if, if it's a good market, we can do Ask Science Mike Live, and you don't have to front any kind of speaking fee or anything like that. If you go to AskScienceMike.com, and click on Book Mike, I would love to come to your conference, to your church, or to your college. I do it all the time. It's, it's a lot of fun. And that's how I come. A lot of people tweet me, hey, come to this city. I'd love to, but someone has to help me get to that city. So anyway, events, tons of events. So lost and found this week. Go to the Liturgist Gathering website this week and check out the One Wild Life Tour and see if we're coming by. Oh, I finished my book. And it's, uh, it's available for pre-order. You're going to hear a lot more about that. If you're one of those people that have already pre-ordered the book, thank you. That's awesome. It's really early. We're not starting the book marketing campaign yet. But I would like to say, if you've pre-ordered the book, save your receipt. Because I'm planning some really cool pre-order bonuses. And if you ordered the book this early, I don't want you to miss out on those pre-order bonuses when they get announced later on. So make sure you save your receipt. Save your receipt if you pre-order the book. Uh, I do want to thank Andrew Galucky uh, for his pre-production work on the show. He's got a podcast called The Middle Class Musician. I'll have a link this week uh, on the show as well. It's a good show. You ought to check that out. Greg Nordine produces the show. Holy cow, you guys. Greg is awesome. He also works with us on the Liturgist podcast. And the amount of just excellence Greg brings to the table is profound. So if you need like sound production work... I don't know, Greg might be hard to get, but uh, you should at least try. He's amazing, he's professional, he's fast, he's responsive. And then Jeb Bodiford wrote the theme song, uh, My Boy, My Dog. He's doing a lot of that work now. Thanks to all of you who have asked Jeb to make music for your work. He's great at it, he's ridiculously talented. So, that's all I've got this week. Uh, Thanks for listening, and I can't wait to see you next Monday. (laughs) 